I would argue that anxiety comes with the job for a lot of leaders. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Dan Millman. You don't have to control your thoughts. You just have to stop letting them control you. Very excited to welcome my guest today, Maura Ahrens Mille. She's the host of The Anxious Achiever, a top 10 management podcast that helps people rethink the relationship between their mental health and their leadership. She also founded Women Online and The Mission List, an award-winning digital consulting firm and influencer marketing company dedicated to social change in 2010 and sold her business in 2021. Moore is also the author of a brand new book that is out this week, The Anxious Achiever. Maura, welcome back to the Elevate podcast. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. So we dug into your background on your first appearance on the show. I'd encourage people to listen to that. It was episode 112. I think we were like just in the throes of COVID when that started. So big time. Uh, why don't we start there? What's changed in your world most oh <laughs> as a result of this global pandemic? <laughs> well, I love it. Let's make some small talk, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Well, besides a, an existential crisis. Uh, yeah, my own. <laughs> that that was all part and parcel. I I can't remember whether you. I think you you had just sold the business. You're in process of selling the business back. I then sold too. the business. Yeah. yeah. So I did everything you're not supposed to do. I moved. Yeah. And then I sold my business, and then I um, changed careers in a painful way, and then I had two kids go through mental health crises. And were those like, was that existing crises that were exasperated by COVID or was that COVID-induced or what, or unrelated? Who knows? Who knows? I mean, do, we, do we know? Do we know? I mean, but I think a little bit of all of it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. You're still standing. Yeah. How about you? What's your biggest aha or change? That's a good question. I wasn't ready to answer questions today. Um, <laughs> biggest change is definitely travel, I think. Mm-hmm. Um I've put a premium on traveling and going all around. Like I like kind of being in one place. I think I realized the physical and mental toll that that was taking after, you know, it's funny. All of us assumed that we could not do what we do without travel. And then no one got on a plane for a year and the world probably did better than it's doing today from a GDP standpoint. So again, we, you know, we were fully remote before COVID and I fought with a lot of people. We could never do this, never do this. Like sometimes, you know, your challenge, your assumptions are challenged, whether you choose to challenge them or not. You know, it's funny. I feel the same way. I also had a totally virtual company. So we were great that way. The traveling piece was a huge parenting aha for me because I, like you probably, I was on a plane almost every week since my kids were born. And I just did it. My husband and I both, we got up at 4.30. We went to Logan. Told we, yourself whatever stories. You exactly. Tell, yeah. Sat on the tarmac at LaGuardia for hours. And like, that's what we did. And then I stopped traveling and I realized that I had been telling myself a story about my parenting that was untrue. Yeah. We're we're all good at this cognitive dissonance thing. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It, for those people who run events or who are talking to speakers, it's interesting 
some speakers are the same price, which I'm actually surprised by, and others, their in-person premium is three to four x their virtual premium. You know, they're clearly putting a night. You know, what it costs to get on a plane and be out of their bed and away from their kids or otherwise. And I, I can't see not having a difference. To me, there's a totally different amount of work in uh, involved in a in an hour virtual event versus a traveling across the country for an hour. But people have taken different approaches. So last time you were on too, I, I think your podcast was a little new, and I know it's been kind of exploded and continued to grow since then. What like what's been your biggest learning from from growing a podcast? I I'm obsessed with podcasting. Um, I have to tell a funny story if you don't mind. Um, my producer and I reached out to a pretty prominent author who's had a, a book go pretty big. And we really wanted to book her on my podcast because my podcast is called The Anxious Achiever. And it's about your anxiety and your leadership and more broadly, mental health and, and work and career. And we love this woman's message. And in her autoresponder was, I don't do podcasts. So challenge accepted. Well, right. <laughs> I I think podcasts are a modern art form. I think also, and I say this as both someone trying to sell a book and a podcast host, there's so many of them that they are getting a little bit commoditized, which is why this author, who probably doesn't hurt for media, felt comfortable saying, I don't do podcasts. That's a pretty blanket statement. But some podcasts have bigger numbers than most TV shows, right? But I think we're at such an interesting juncture in podcasting where it's much harder to break through these days, you know, there, there truly is a glut of content and podcasting is becoming more of a thing that creators and influencers do versus its own specific, um, metier or, you know, lane or skill that a lot of us earlier podcasters chose. And so as someone who's worked in, in influencer and social media marketing for so many years, I also look at it as a creator and as a marketer thinking, so what does this mean for our content? Podcasts are like another stream of influencer content, it seems to me these days. You know, it's really interesting. And I've said this to a few people because you're you're launching a book. I just got done launching my book. Uh, mm-hmm. As I went around to the list of all the shows I was on a couple of years ago, some big names and people that, you know... I would say half of them were like, I gave up my podcast. And to what you were saying, I think it's hard to replicate an early mover advantage. I think a lot of people came in and they were doing it for the wrong reason. They were doing it for their business. They were doing it. They thought it'd be quick success. And I I was surprised how many for, you know, I think probably, you know, two or three years ago was you were almost, I think Buffett has this phrase, what the wise man does in the beginning, the fool does at the end. And it was either him or Munger. <laughs> that was like was me or me and Clubhouse. <laughs> right. I just thought it was interesting because these were some big CEOs and otherwise, and they, you know, I don't know whether they were looking for instant success or otherwise, but they had all kind of bailed on it. And it seems to reward those who focus on uh, keep doing it and do it for the right reasons. I think a lot of people were doing it for, a, it was almost like a, when you have people have a child to try to save another child, like they're doing it for the, whatever that's called, like you're doing it for something totally unrelated, which makes it not pure, which makes it harder to stay with or otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Con- I mean, content really matters and audio is such an intimate media. Like it, we, we're, you're coming into someone's ears, like you're taking up space in their brain. And I think you have to respect that. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, just to brag, like I love my podcast and I get notes from people every week and they say, your podcast has made a difference in my life. Yeah. 
your podcast has helped me get through COVID. Your podcast has helped me. But I think because you're not trying to, you are trying to have an incredible conversation with someone that's meaningful, right? The focus is on that episode and then it produces this great outcome. I think a lot of people are just a step yeah. past that, right? In terms of what they're, they're looking to what's going to come out of it first. Well, what the outcome will be. So that's, yeah. yeah, my, my advice to any, you know, nascent podcasters out there is like, love the medium, be podcasting for a reason. Yeah. Choose podcasting for a reason. Similarly, people would ask me, you know, I've done a lot in the affiliate space and they'd say years ago, hey, I'm going to start an affiliate site and what kind of content should I like write about, you know, to make money? And I'd say, look, all of these affiliates and publishers, I know they're super successful. They wrote all the content before they monetized it. You know, they loved grills. They loved whatever. Like <gasps> to get up every day and do that and not like what you're writing about is really hard. I was like, they all figured out monetization once they had a huge audience. You're going into it kind of backwards. So yeah. it is interesting. So we talked a little bit about this last time. I think it's worth kind of setting the stage again. But, you know, you have a unique focus on sort of, I think, two things, anxiety and kind of in entrepreneurs and high achievers in particular, which is not normally how a lot of people think of it under that lens. What What is the origin story of that becoming your focus? And why is it so important to you personally? I think it's so funny because I mean, anyone who's met a high achieving person <laughs> a lot of us are really anxious. You know, I feel like there's a there's a few reasons why people become high achievers and and anxiety. And again, there's only this this field is so nascent. Data on anxiety and its motivating and its strengths is is quite new. But um I think a lot of us are anxious achievers and we know them. And it's my passion because A, it's who I am and I've both had to pay a huge price and and gain gifts. But also because as I went around the country for my first book, it's what people wanted to talk about. When I would talk at elite universities, when I would talk at places like Google, they would come to me and they would say, we're so anxious and we've always been this way and like maybe we need to be this way, but it's really messing with us. And I built a sort of qualitative data set of people who both have big ambitions, big careers are highly motivated, but who manage mental health challenges. So are they, I'm quite like, are they, because I feel like sometimes when we look at anxious, we look at people who are sort of crippled and maybe, maybe not able to get stuff done. So with the high achieving set, are they good at hiding it or do people overlook it because they're accomplishing things? Are they, are they better at suppressing it? Like, is there anything different about the high achieving set that you've seen? All of it. And I will say that that high achievers also have crippling panic attacks and can't leave their beds. Um, and that's a big piece of what we talk about on my show and in my book. So anxiety exists on a spectrum, like all of mental health, right? And so at one end is crippling clinical anxiety disorder. I can't get out of my bed. I can't fly. I can't get up and talk to people, right? That right. is very, very challenging. And and really, you need a lot of professional help. And I speak from experience because I have been there and I have bipolar too as well. However, a lot of us, certainly during the pandemic, and a lot of us anyway, operate in sort of a mid-range of anxiety, right? We may wake up every morning and we have a pit in our stomach. We may get jumpy and it's hard to breathe sometimes and we can't focus. We may have perfectionism and we always have to be the best. We may walk into a room and be crippled by imposter feelings. But 
we go on and we're even motivated by our anxiety. And then as you get sort of on the less and less consequential spectrum of anxiety, you know, anxiety is really motivating and we need it. It's it's a base human emotion for a reason. We would not be alive as a species if we didn't have anxiety, right? And so sometimes you need it. <laughs> you made me think of something. You actually said something I was going to say. I was As you were speaking, I was thinking about imposter syndrome. Yeah. And I was thinking that like all the people I met with imposter syndrome are incredible, humble leaders. All the people without it are like terribly arrogant, setting up for like a huge fall, right? So it seems like the people with no anxiety are probably a little detached from reality or what's going on or are like living a little bit in la la land in terms of their, <laughs> like they might have had great timing on everything. And so they think I'm in great and nothing could ever go wrong. Right. I think about Andy uh, Grove's book, like only the paranoid survive. Like it does <laughs> seem like maybe the people that are continually successful ha- like have a baseline anxiety that keeps them sort of paying attention to important things and not getting too full of themselves. I, you know, what I like to say is anxiety comes with a job because, because anxiety is basically a response to perceived uncertainty or a fear of the future a lot yeah. of times when it's not a crippling disorder. But when you walk in and you have that earnings call and you're like, oh God, and you can't eat and you're really jumpy, you need that anxiety. But more importantly, when you're a leader, you're paid to think about what's next. You're paid yeah. to think about the worst case scenario. You're paid to have good social skills and tap into what other people are feeling and care about how you come across. And so I would argue that anxiety comes with the job for a lot of leaders. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.
And so if, if you had to estimate how common is anxiety among high-performing leaders, is it 100%? Is no. it 90%? No. Well, and also like most people aren't anxious all day, right? Or it yeah, comes, yeah. Um, there's something called trait anxiety, which is you're more likely to be, quote, an anxious person. You're born with it. It's a trait. And then there's state anxiety, which a lot of us felt during the pandemic, which is more situational or right. about, right? So I would say, you know, the data says that 86% of people over their lifetimes will experience some kind of mental ill health. So that mean, you know, they think about a quarter to 30% have a diagnosable mental illness, yeah. although I, I think it's really underreported and that's sort of pre-pandemic data. But all of us, because we are human, will have periods of mental ill health. Yeah. And I think how we process those periods and how we maybe own up to those periods will impact how we move through some of those periods, right? A hundred percent. You have to, you know, the, the word that psychologists use is integrate. And this comes from a lot of trauma research. When you integrate the bad things, the good things that have happened to you into both your own identity, but your own narrative, that is how you both live a full life. But it's an incredible leadership quality. There's a reason why we love stories of people who had harrowing experiences and have come to move through it. it. Right. And and look, a lot of the research I've read, a lot of the data I've seen, you know, we, we've entered this 20-year experiment of sort of helicopter parenting. Now, I think the early data is the outcomes are not good. Not good. <laughs> um, not they're, good. they're really bad. So combined, parenting has shifted, technology shifted. I was saying to someone yesterday, my friends that were teachers, I think why I could not teach today is because of the the shifting of the trilogy alliance. You know, when, when I grew up, it was parent and teacher versus child. Now mm -hmm. it is parent and child versus teacher, <laughs> which is an impossible place to be in because it's like, what did you do wrong that my kid, whatever. So a little bit of anxiety is, is a muscle. We have an education system and everything that is just about eliminating mistakes and things that were wrong and not like getting some reps at this. I actually have some hope that the people who went through COVID and, and realized they came out on the other side will have that muscle at some point in their lives. In fact, when I went around to team and stuff during COVID and saw how people were doing because of the type of company we have and some of the discussions, I, I had intimate knowledge of some of people's growing up in childhood and stuff like that. And some of the people who objectively were in a worse situation than others, but came from really difficult child circumstances, they were kind of handling it. They're like, I know how to handle this stuff. Other people were collapsing, but that was just because they were watching the news 24 hours a day. Right. It wasn't because they didn't have food or shelter or otherwise. So I think part of this is we've, we've tried to take out some of this stuff out of childhood around having some early fear and misstep and boogeyman and stuff like that, where we could develop a muscle a little bit around some of it. Oh my gosh. I mean, all of it. I want to highlight two things that you just said. The first is the muscle. And I think the muscle is resiliency and yeah. every piece of data we have, whether it's parenting, whether it's, you know, going forward in life, resiliency is a skill that we have to learn. We're not yeah. born with grit. No. And if not getting an A you think is going to end your life at 14 years old, like that's just not... Well, that's a not recipe. true. It's a terrible thing to coach everyone. And that's that's where we are. That, unfortunately, that's what this great inflation has done. It has just made anything less than perfection be absolutely anxiety provoking. 
Well, a hundred percent. I mean, anxiety is a, a, largely a fear of the uncertain. And so these kids are being told if you're not perfect, your future is going to suck. And that is a really heavy burden. I feel, I mean, I work with a lot of people who are perfectionists and I'm a recovering perfectionist. And, you know, it really is this external weight, this external need for validation. And it is such a heavy burden to carry. So let's talk about the book a little bit, uh, The Anxious Achiever, a familiar name. So I know early in the book, you define the difference between fear and anxiety. Can you go into some detail around that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think uh, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, fear, stress, and anxiety can can feel similar. So it's a little confusing, yeah. right? Like they can manifest physically and emotionally in similar ways, but fear is external. Like fear is like, oh shit, I got a break on the highway. Sorry. I just said the S word. I hope that's okay. All right. All good. We might be eliminated in some countries, but that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's because that car nearly cut you off. Like that's yeah. fear. Um, stress is also external. Like, oh my God, why are you giving me six hours of work this weekend? I don't have time because I have to go take care of my mother. That's stress. Someone else has placed that on you and has unreal expectations. And anxiety is an internal state. It's an emotion that tells us either we can't, everything's going to be terrible, we're going to be ashamed, and the future is bad. But things could be fine. So there's an, maybe a corollary to that I've seen. I think there's a, a miscorrelation between danger and discomfort in the last couple of years because mm. things that are actually dangerous and things that are make us uncomfortable and I think, again, parents have struggled with this around where are your kids uncomfortable? I always say if my kids are safe, I don't care if they're uncomfortable. In fact, uh-huh. the more opportunities <laughs> to be uncomfortable and safe, even better, because sometimes those go hand in hand, right? But this was early in the pandemic. Things were both dangerous and uncomfortable. Going outside was potentially dangerous. But once, what was interesting is once we removed the danger from some of this stuff, people still didn't re- haven't recovered from the comfort thing. Like the the equation on danger is totally different, but they can't get themselves to move on the comfort side, which I think is is interesting and probably prolongs some of these things. It's why you have to take the time to understand your anxiety and sit in discomfort. I will say to people, like it's not your fault. Your brain does not want you to be uncomfortable. Correct. So what does your brain do? You have all these scary thoughts, you're anxious, you're scared, you don't want to be uncomfortable. So maybe you'll have a snack or maybe you'll turn on TikTok or maybe you'll close your email and not respond to your boss. Anything to get away from the thinking about it, right? A hundred percent. That's our, that is our, it's not our fault. It's our brain trying to help us. And so what we have to do is we have to say, sorry, brain. (laughs) You know what? I am not going to eat all of those Oreos. Instead, and this comes back to the resilient piece, people who build resiliency know how to take care and build in guardrails. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to sit down for 15 minutes and write 10 words because it's really uncomfortable for me to write this email and I hate how it's feeling. So maybe I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to write just 10 words. Right. And so then you're sitting in a little discomfort, you're pushing through, and your brain has an opportunity to learn that it doesn't have to have a box of cookies. Not that there's anything wrong with cookies, but you know. Right. I mean, you talk about sitting with discomfort. So there's physical discomfort and there's intellectual discomfort, right? There's, I'm curious of your thoughts. There's 
movements on on certain fringes these days that if something is uncomfortable, it should be avoided. And again, I think in all of these environments, anxiety levels seem to be higher and people aren't making that correlation where, where if it's uncomfortable, we shouldn't even, there should be a warning. You should stay away from it. Don't discuss it. But why are people ignoring <laughs> the stimulus and effect of a lot of these things? <laughs> I think as people just are uncomfortable talking about all of this stuff, it's easier to ignore and it's much easier not to sit in discomfort. You know, I mean, I, I think that we as a society are going through a lot of discomfort, a lot of it like really welcome and good discomfort. And so we're all squirming as a society, you know? Right. But but one of the things that I've learned from my research and just from talking about from, to hundreds of people who are super successful and who manage mental health challenges is that you can't change until you sit in the discomfort. And that's why therapy is amazing. That's why coaching right. is amazing, right? You don't have to do it alone. You don't have to do it alone, but you have to do it. So what's your take on on part of the educational system now, which is just really trying to avoid any ideological discomfort or debate? Or I mean, and, and a lot of people, higher education is supposed to be around ideas and debate, and the people are trying to remove that in some cases. I mean, is this not healthy? I blame social media. I blame social media for everything. I think that, I think that- um, <laughs> It's a good scapegoat. No, I, I think that um, I 100% and I'm a raging liberal, so I just want to say that, but I think yeah. that 100% we have a very rightful fear of being shamed, which is a lot of why we have a lot of anxiety, because many of us live in fear of being shamed. Or that people don't agree with us, which is okay. But right? well, <laughs> but a lot of us feel if people don't agree with us, we must be wrong. Like what's wrong with us? Or now they hate me or I said the wrong thing. And so we avoid it. And um, when you're on social media and you're called out, it is horribly shaming. And I think that rightly so, people are scared to speak because they know that whatever they say, they can will be captured. And there's there's no room for nuance on social media. And so that really stifles conversation, I think, and stifles healthy discomfort. And I think also, you know, when it comes to our kids in school, my experience actually is 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 refreshingly that the teachers, they do want kids to experience discomfort. Yeah. A lot of parents may not. And that, again, pushes the system to your analogy of like kid and parent versus teacher. Um, but I, I do think, and I say this as someone who like puts out content every week, that there's a huge fear that you're releasing your words out into the world. And that feels really scary. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. 
Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, I think I think there's a social media part, but I think there is an academic part that is not by social media. And I think on on some parts of academia, it's like, hey, there's the preferred narrative and like you're on board with it. And if you disagree with it, it's dangerous. And that to me, that concept is extremely dangerous because that's all about conformity. And again, just that you should have uncomfortable. There's like debate class. It should be uncomfortable. Take the opposite argument. Like we're eliminating safe but uncomfortable things because people have been trained that discomfort is bad or, mm-hmm. or they've been told that. And I think there's a Look, there was a great book I read called The Coddling in the American Mind. That is a great book. (laughs) Phenomenal book. I've referred to a lot of people. And I was thinking about it because, look, I have a a relative who has a media family, has anaphylactic peanut allergies. So Mm. I really appreciated his story of the peanut thing in class where they were like, no tree nuts or nuts or otherwise nothing. And he's like, does anyone in this class have a nut allergy? And they're like, that's besides the point. And he's like, no, no, I think that's exactly the point. Like, (laughs) Like, I don't. Like And actually, the less kids are exposed to nuts, the more they become allergic to nuts, you know, based on the study. And look, to my knowledge, and like no one's no one who's allergic to nuts or otherwise has has gotten sick and died through airborne transmission. It's just not a thing. You have to eat it, right? And you usually eat it by mistake or accident or it has to be on something. So I was on a plane. I was thinking about this last week, and they were said, "Hey, someone on the plane is allergic to nuts. So no one on the plane, can have any nuts or do anything or otherwise. And I was thinking like, that is totally not backed by any science or reality. Unfortunately, or fortunately, they should probably say to the people in that row, hey, this is Julie, because it's this unnamed person. This is Julie. Julie is allergic to peanuts. Would you really appreciate everyone in this row protect Julie and not eat peanuts around Julie? But the person in the row 30 miles away can have a peanut. It's not it's not relevant, <sighs> but it, it was actually like living this out on the plane where they're trying to, Again, I understand they're trying to stop the person or from feel- I don't think it's about feeling bad. It's like this person has an allergy and let's protect this person, the people sitting next to her. Um, but I just thought it was so funny when I heard it because I remember the study and I was like, this is this is not the correct way to handle this <laughs> this situation. I, I'm sorry, I totally have to disagree with you. Okay, I mean, I we can like disagree. Exactly. Like I feel like that was a lot of the mask allergies. I I believe. And I, I agree that like a lot of public health is sweeping and broad and that's where the problems start, right? Because it's much easier to say the whole plane doesn't eat peanuts than like seat 32B and seat 30, right? So there's that messaging piece. Yeah. But but my point is, so what that you don't have nuts? So what that you have to wear a mask? We are a community. We support each other. And it comes back to parenting also. Yeah. I got yelled at as a coach recently for asking kids not to foul, and I said, I'm their coach. If I if I don't ask them not to foul and teach them, like who will? Not to foul like illegally in or basketball. Not to foul? Oh, in basketball. Got it. And okay. and so I think a piece of it that really makes me sad, and this is totally outside the topic of my book, but I'll just yeah. go there because it's important, is is that we don't care for each other. We have no sense. I mean, it's getting worse after the pandemic. We have no sense of being in this together. Yeah. And we will not survive as a society if we don't care for each other. And so I just vehemently disagree with you about the nuts. Sorry. So I actually think we agree more than we disagree because I am saying that and, – and actually, I got a note from a parent after I wrote a Friday Fordham about this saying that like actually – 
my kid got asked to go to a nut-free dorm. They have anaphylactic. She's like, and he was like, why would I do that? And she's like, we taught them at a young age. He had cards. His friends would throw himself in front of peanuts for them like they yeah. knew it. I, I think in that example, and this is why I actually think we're saying the same thing. You might disagree. I think to have empathy or protect people, you need to be asked or you need to like, I'd be like, of course, oh, Jessica here has peanut allergy. Like, of course, I'm not going to eat. The problem with some of the, and I agree with the mask and protecting other people, the problem is when you take the intersection of all of these things and then try to genericize all of them 100%. and tell people they can't do everything, and and for unnamed reasons, then it becomes but, really hard to get people to care about other people, right? Okay, but Robert, you have just hit on why public health sucks. This is a public <laughs> health problem. Yeah. Public health communications, and you and I are both marketers, is so bad. Right. And it's always about you can't and you and them. And that's the problem. Like, I think we're all agreeing. Like, we don't want anyone to die of a peanut allergy. No. That's horrible. But I I would get really upset working in my former life. And we worked with a ton of NGOs and organizations, government agencies. And it's so hard how to communicate about this stuff in a way that builds empathy and not, ugh, really. <laughs> I, I agree, right? To me, I, I again, so I think we're saying the same thing. To me, it yeah. would just be the total. If you ever told me I was sitting, and again, I didn't care that someone couldn't have nuts, but if you ever told me I was sitting next to someone and they had, I was like, I, I have a person in my family, absolutely. Like, I do not need to eat peanuts. But again, the whole plain solution, which people know is not based on actual danger to that person. I think obfuscates the message, but we can move on from the from the nuts. <laughs> but I but I do think there's something around that around you're making a little bit everyone anxious or it sounds like it's a bigger thing than it actually is when there's an acute, you know, problem that that we can well handle. the person so. with the nuts probably if she, you know, she could feel really guilty, like, oh my God, I'm taking something. I, I would bet that a lot of people, I would, if it were me, I would spend the whole plane ruminating. Oh my God, am I ruining people's time? Like, right. is this hard? You know, so we all, I mean, the other thing about anxiety is anxiety pings. It's contagious. Yeah. And so a situation like that creates anxiety. But you also have said that you think anxiety is a double-edged sword. So what's the upside? <laughs> and I haven't just said that. Scientists have said that. Let me be clear. I am not a scientist. Um, scientists have said that because anxiety is the, an emotion that has kept us alive, right? And anxiety yeah. is a motivating factor. So you can um, learn and fight or fight, right? A hundred percent, right? Like, you know, if you're running from a bear, you're pretty darn anxious, but the reason where anxiety serves you is that you might be walking in the woods and you might hear a rustle and smell something and think, is there a bear? That's anxiety. So we need it. That that was meant though. And I know you'll like that reaction and that thing that fills you with cortisol and everything is meant to heighten your senses and possibly save your life. And it's kind of supposed to be an emergency system. We are using that for white collar things that it was never designed for way too often, right? But that's not our fault. We still yeah. feel the anxiety. Our brain is primitive. Correct. It's the, you have the same biological reaction to, 100%. you know, that your life is threatened or that your housekeeper is 10 minutes late, right? Oh my God. Well, that is really, <laughs> um, no. But it has I the same physiological response on, to some people's bodies on, they had to be somewhere and they're late mm -hmm. and they're anxious. It, yeah. I mean, how many of us when our babysitters have been late or when, you know, we're late or the train stops and we're going to be late for a meeting, that fight or flight kicks in and there's a bear in the corner. So, so the key is to say, is there really a bear in the corner, which can be translated into if I'm 10 minutes late for this meeting, what's going to happen? 
and try to get yourself in a more balanced state of mind. And if, and if you can't, and you're just super anxious, you know, I mean, I've had days like this where like the stupidest things make me anxious because I'm anxious about something bigger and I'm flooded. And then I can't ask myself questions. I just have to try to like breathe and recenter and get my breath and then try to move forward, you know, but I, I just want people to know that this is physiological, but it's also something that is natural and we need to learn to manage it. And when we do learn to manage it, just like when we learn to become resilient out of anything hard, we're better. We're better. How does one get themselves, again, not, not, let's say we're taking kind of the clinical and need more serious help off the table, but these things become vicious spirals a little bit, as you said, like, what is the best way to, if you find yourself kind of getting into a spiral or again, you're just, you're focused or worried on things that are not, they're not bears. That's going to be my new, (laughs) (laughs) right? You're feeling like everything's a bear, but it's not a bear. Like maybe what do you do or what do you encourage people to do to sort of unwind the vicious cycle that that I, I know I've felt it and other people have. And it's weird. Sometimes nothing bothers me and sometimes everything bothers me. Everything bothers you. And yeah. you can actually, it would be yeah. funny to say like, is it a bear? I like that. I'm <laughs> going to steal it. Look, I, I'll just use my own example. I'm trying to make my book popular right now. And I am so anxious about that. I am beleaguered by imposter feelings well, I'm not a doctor. I don't have a PhD. I I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm beleaguered by perfectionism. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I didn't try hard enough. I'm going to fail. I'm beleaguered by catastrophizing. This book isn't going to sell. And then what's going to happen? Are you going to like go bankrupt? You're going to lose your house. Like it gets dark. And why do you think it like, is that motivating to you in some way? Does it keep like, why do you think that (laughs) <laughs> like you, you, you go there. It's, yeah. Cause you know, it's not going to bankrupt you, right? Yeah. I know yeah. better. Not a big bear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a big bear because it's about my identity. Correct. And my meaning in the world. And I, and I like many anxious achievers put a lot of meaning into my career identity. And so I can say that like, wow, more, this is really important to you. And I also know that I'm just really anxious by nature. A lot of the people that I have interviewed and talked to Lord knows why some people have black hair, some people have red hair. We are anxious by nature and we have to really say, okay, you know what? I'm anxious today. I'm just anxious, but like I'm going to mail a hundred books, which I have done and gone to the post office. Or we can say, breathe, <laughs> like let's do some balanced thoughts. Let's ask ourselves some questions. Right. You're publishing a book. That's a privileged thing to be able to do. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to come back and and sort of ground it in reality. Or, but you could also say, and and this is why anxiety happens before something we really care about. You could also say, you know what? So what if you're you're going to be anxious for a few a month or so? Like, use it. Yeah. Use it. So what if you don't sleep as well? Again, not talking about crippling anxiety yeah, yeah, yeah. here. Overt versus covert anxiety, like is. It particularly in high achievers. Again, I, I I I have levels of anxiety. I think mine's a little more covert, uh, but I actually find that sometimes when I'm around overt people, it actually starts bringing me down to that. Like, which is, I mean, not better because that's not the right question. Sort of pro con of someone who 
Um, because I, I think visibly containing it sometimes is probably good and helps. And then it's also bad. And then the other times being open and honest and direct with it is good, but walking into any conversation and bringing your stuff as a spillover is not good. So help me understand how this shows up for people who are very open with it. And I think there's a lot of group and some of this, for I've seen, you know, much better. I mean, falls a little bit on gender lines and I think norms of men, I think tend to hide it more. Men do. Yeah. So what, what, what are the implications on both sides of that? I will say I actually just did a totally informal poll on LinkedIn. Is it harder for men to express anxiety and, and depression? And 80% said yes. So there's tons of gender norms. Is that and answered so, by men or by men and women? By men and women. By men and women. Okay. Yeah. Which is also important. I actually try to have I try to have a lot of white guys on my podcast because I really want people to start associating this stuff with people who have more status in our society than others. Yeah. But um I think it's it's about boundaries. It's your choice. Nobody wants to bring their mess, <laughs> right? And as a leader, you don't want to bring your mess. However, and all the data on psychological safety and building good teams shows this, when you are a little bit more vulnerable, that can be a really powerful leadership tool. And so again, I think it's, everyone has their own boundaries. You know, if you, I have a lot of people I talked to, they were raised in very conservative families. Nobody talked about mental health. Yeah. It's just something they will never quite feel isn't shameful. And then you have someone like me who was raised in a family where everyone went to therapy and I could talk about it all day. You have your personal boundaries and then you have workplace boundaries. Is this appropriate to share right now? Is this something that will boost my social capital in the organization or diminish it? These are all fair questions to ask. Yeah. But I encourage people who do have power in an organization to talk about it because that's how things change and the stigma lessens. Well, on that note, who's a leader that you admire who's or spoken about their mental health in a way that you think has been both vulnerable and helpful? It's so funny. It, there are still so few leaders who talk about it openly, but I, I want to highlight two. One is a business leader, um, Andy Dunn, who co-founded. Oh, I just, uh, but no, yeah. yeah. I was just reading about him this morning saying, talking about success and saying that, you know what, selling the company did nothing for him. He much more enjoyed building it. I thought it was a really interesting comment. He's a very smart guy and he has bipolar one. So very severe bipolar and built and ran the company while having manic episodes and depressions. And so um, now one could argue he sold the company, he's rich, whatever he can afford to tell his story. But I really recommend his book, Burn Rate. It is raw, it is moving, and it's a real insight. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have a lot of time for him. He also blurred my book and called it Extraordinary. And um, <laughs> and then there's... um a congresswoman from Vermont, Rebecca Balint. And um, she has been an elected official who is functioning. You know, she's functioning well. She's showing up at work, but she has talked openly about her mental health. And I really respect that because she is a high-powered, high-performing elected official who is being very proactive and open about her mental health challenges. And I think that's really, really important. And thinking, we're talking about kind of leaders and organizations, like what can leaders do to create an environment that alleviates anxiety? Like what can they do at the organizational level? They cannot be assholes. 
No, but this is true. First do no harm. Yeah. I mean, no, really, a lot of it is, um, and you see this in the workplace mental health movement right now, you know, so a lot of companies, many companies, every company that can has telehealth, they have benefits, they're talking about mental health, they're doing town halls, right? They're saying, we care about this. Well, while they make people's lives miserable. At the exactly. Same <laughs> and so that is the crux of it. And I know you've written a ton about this. This is your whole thing. So you know more about this than me, but like, so much happens also at the team level. I think that's something really important to highlight. I've seen so many companies and worked with people who everyone at the top and even in HR does all the right things, but they exist on a team of people that is run by a manager right. that worsens mental health. What One bad manager can destroy 10 people's mental health. That's right. And so they can have all the benefits they want. They can have all the headspace and yoga and access to, you know, better help they want. But if they're having to show up in a toxic environment, if they're having to be on all hours, if they have no boundaries, all the stuff, their mental health, and there is tons of data behind this, their mental health will suffer. And actually 76% of Americans, I think it's 76% of Americans have said work has contributed to anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges. So deal with your toxic managers. That's what I take from that. That they're, I mean, the ripple effect is, I, I've talked to people years later who are still traumatized 100%. by 100%. stuff where they were, where there's something they were told they weren't something or they were characterized in that way. And it's amazing how it follows them. It follows them. And that becomes leadership anxiety. Because you have these formative experiences and you're told by someone who you respect or who you work for, you're not worth it. And it's very hard to unwrite that story. And so we bring that story with us until we're ready to get rid of it. All right. Well, Maura, you got the book launch coming up, uh, podcast. Tell everyone where they can find you, find the book, find the podcast. Uh, where can they find all things Anxious Achiever? <laughs> the world of the Anxious <laughs> Achiever. I actually have t-shirts and if you want one message me on LinkedIn. So um, please buy the book wherever you like to buy books. It's called The Anxious Achiever. Please uh, listen to the podcast. The podcast is really great. We have lots of seasons of back episodes on everything from imposter feelings to perfectionism to dealing with bipolar when you're a CEO to managing ADHD to dealing with neurodiversity in your office. It's just a great resource. So you can get that wherever you get your podcasts. And um, I really, I, I love to build community. I've been doing, that's been my passion for gosh, 25 years now. So come talk to me on LinkedIn. I will write you back. All right. Well, Mona, thanks for coming and joining us again today. You're doing really important work. And I think you're you're forcing us to have conversations that uh, we need to be having about anxiety in the workplace and, and high achievers. So appreciate everything you're doing. I hope I made you a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I need more disagreement on the podcast. Like I said, I just said not everyone can agree on everything and they've got to be uncomfortable. So exactly. I can model that. But, you know, that was a great example of, I think, people say they disagree. And, and and actually, there's more agreement sometimes than disagreement if you actually if you actually talk through that. So yeah. if that's the most uncomfortable I am this week, then I'll be, I'll, I'll be good. So You'll have a good week. All right. Exactly. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include a link to Mora and the Anxious Achiever, which you can buy now wherever books are sold on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I appreciate if you could leave us a review or rating as that's what helps new users discover the show and hear great interviews with folks such as Mora. Thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating.
This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.